So today in this passage, we see a, kind of a nickname of Jesus that we're gonna focus on. And um, I don't know how many of you guys in here have nicknames. I always thought nicknames were, were really cool. And I've always, I've always wanted one, you know? It's just kind of cool to have something other than your normal name that people call you. It's kind of a term of endearment most of the time. Um, I uh, especially wanted a nickname um, in high school, especially in sports, you know, it's just kind of a thing, like when you're playing sports, you want like some kind of an identity, some kind of a, a nickname, and several people tried to give me nicknames along the way. I actually played football um, at, a, at a two-way school. Um, some of you guys are looking at me going, how this guy played football? And I, I may not be strong, but I'm slow. So um, I did play football, and there was, this, there was this guy that played for the Cowboys at the time I was playing high school football. His name was Kelvin Martin. Anyone remember Kelvin Martin? Um, and his, his nickname was Kmart, you know, Kelvin Martin, Kmart. So a few of my friends, because I had a lot in common with Kelvin Martin and that we both wore shoes, um, they, they started calling me Kmart. So they said, hey, let's just, let's just start to Kmart. So a few people called me that, but then it kind of died away. And it didn't stick. And so someone came up with the idea of Main Man Martin. You know, that sounded cool. So I would do something good, like, ah, oh, Main Man Martin. But I didn't do enough good things often enough for that to stick. So that didn't work either. Um, and so another thing that happened when I was playing football is I dislocated both of my knees twice at different times. And I don't know if you've ever seen a dislocated knee. It's really not that serious of an injury. It, it's like a four-week recovery time and you're done. But if you see it happen to you, you think you're probably going to die in the next 10 minutes because it's the most freaky-looking injury. Um, so that happened to me. And so my friends just started calling me Knees, like Knees Martin. Um, but that was just didn't really have a ring to it, um, so that didn't stick. So I left high school without a nickname and just kind of stunk. You know, I was like, I've always wanted a, a nickname that would actually stick. Um, so I started my... Uh, it's called a career at, at IGO with Lance. And one day I was listening to a, a voicemail. Um, one of those automated machines that called left me a voicemail and said, this is a message for Kentucky Martin. <laughs> you notice my name is spelled K-Y. And so the, the, the machine read that Kentucky. And so a few people started calling me Kentucky, um, but that didn't stick. And so here we are today um, still with no nickname. So that can be a challenge for you, church. Come up with a nickname for me. That will stick. Um, but uh, in this passage, it's what we see is that, you know, Lance talked about last week the name Jesus. Um, the angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. And that's what we know him as. But there's another name in there that people didn't really call him that, but it was kind of a nickname. It was a title. It was a, a word that captured and described who Jesus was. So let's look at that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. She, again, this is the angel speaking to Joseph, and he says, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Lance talked about that last week, that Jesus means God to the rescue or Savior. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's today's topic is the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. And I started asking myself, looking at that, what, is, what does that mean? When you think of God with us, what all can be said about that? What does that mean? And, and at first glance, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, like most answers to questions, there's like a simple answer and then a deeper answer. I mean, at first it's like, well, of course, God with us. Jesus, being God, came, took on flesh, 
was with us, was among us, walked on our soil. He was God with us. And while that's true, it kind of leaves a question of answered of wasn't, wasn't God with us before Jesus came? I mean, he was, right? I mean, God is omnipresent. We believe that God is actually everywhere at all times, that he's omnipresent, that he is always with us, no matter who we are, where we are, what we're doing, that God is always near to us and with us everywhere in all things. So what, what, what was different about this? What was special? How was it different? Why was Jesus called Emmanuel if God was already with us all the time? And part of the answer to that is this it's a theological term called progressive revelation. And it's, it sounds like a fancy term, but it's basically just this. It's the idea that over the course of history, God has been progressively revealing himself and becoming present with his creation, with his people over time. Um, that, that when God originally created man, he was fully with them, that God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day, that there was an unbroken, unhindered, perfect relationship where God was with man in perfect harmony. But then after the fall, there was this separation. And since then, the course of history is the story of God bringing his presence back to his people. Um, I heard last week that Lance did some visuals, so not to be outdone, um, I brought my own. Don't worry, I'm not like a magician or anything. I'm just gonna do a quick uh, illustration of this. And so if we can think of this, this jar, this trendy little milk jar thing, as, um, as God's presence, that after the fall, God's presence was removed from humanity. And um, what we see in Genesis is that God speaks to Abraham, right? We just walked through the book of Genesis that God starts making himself known to this people, Israel. He speaks to Abraham, he speaks to Jacob, he's with Joseph in all his trials, and that God's presence is returning to humanity, that we see God dwelling with man again. You keep reading and you see the, ex, the story of Exodus that God begins to speak through Moses. He gives them the law. He's with them um, in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that God's presence is, is again returning to humanity to be with them, to dwell with them. And then you see God speaking to his people um, through the prophets, God giving promises, God revealing more of who he is to his people and that other nations are now hearing about this great God because Israel's become such this great nation. And so God's presence is, is again dwelling with his people. And then something you'll, you'll hear in a lot of the Christmas songs is this idea of 400 years of silence, um, that God's people were exiled, they were taken captivity because of their disobedience. Um, God was sending them prophets, warning of this destruction, urging them to repent. But there was this period of time, this era, where God was pretty much silent, that between the time Jesus came and the last of the Old Testament books were written when God was speaking through these prophets, there was this 400 years of silence. And we can say that before Jesus came, pre-Christmas, God's presence was three things. One, it was restricted, right? That yes, God was present with his people, but his presence with them was restricted, that there were certain levels of the temple, right? That the temple where, where people went to meet with God, to worship God, that the high priest only once a year could go into the holy, the holy of holies behind the curtain, behind the veil, to truly be in God's presence. 
And then the priest could come in an area a little bit closer to the dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies. And then the men could come into this outer court and then the women could come to this court that was even further out. And then the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, had a little area that they could come to. So access to God, God's presence with his people was restricted. Another thing we see is that it was scary, right? That when you and I think of the presence of God, we don't get this sense of dread and fear that if we come into his presence, we might die right? But that's exactly how people viewed God's presence in the Old Testament. The idea was that man could not stand before God in his holiness because of his sin. That the idea of coming into God's presence was a scary, frightful thing. And no one would dare approach God without a special invitation and special provisions being made for them. Another thing we see is that it was very sporadic, that God's spirit would, would come upon different people at different times, and it almost seemed kind of random that he would indwell the prophets or maybe one of the kings um, or the priests, but, but all in all, God's people weren't indwelt, each individual, by his spirit. And then at Christmas, everything began to change. It's like God was progressively revealing and reconciling himself back to humanity and at Christmas, it's like there was this great outpouring of God's presence among us, which is why we celebrate it the way we do, which is why it is such a big deal to us in the church today. That God's manifestation, God's presence became fuller among us than ever before since the fall. Because God became man. I'm going to give you another theological term this morning. This one's going to be on the screen. It's called the hypostatic union. And again, it's a, like most theological terms, it's a fancy sounding word, but the meaning is actually not that, um, not that complex. Um, the word hypostatic just essentially means essence or nature, right? And so the essence or nature of both God and man being unified in Jesus. So the essence and union. The idea behind the, that term is that Jesus is in his essence by his nature both fully God and fully man. That Jesus is 100% God. Colossians 1 says that by him all things were created. That Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He is immortal. He is all powerful. He holds all things together by the power of his hand. He is, was and is fully God. Just as much God of the same essence or nature as God the Father. But that this, this Jesus was not only God, but at Christmas he became man. And that he was 100% man, that he was not posing or pretending to be man, but he was a man just like you and I. He needed to be fed and clothed and changed just like you and I. And there's a reason people insist on that language. Historically, the church has insisted that Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man because he's not less than God and he's not less than man. He is 100% God. Nothing about God is lacking in him and he is 100% man. There's nothing about him when he was on earth that was not characteristic of a normal man. 100% God and 100% man. And this is why it's, we say it's a mystery. It's a confounding idea because if you add those two up, it equals 200%, right? Which theoretically 
doesn't exist, but, but God is, is bigger than that. That's why it's a mystery. That's why it's confounding. There was a, um, a creed that surfaced around um, in the 400s where the church was trying to kind of nail this down and solidify what, what true believers believe versus some of these heresies that were going around. Um, and the Athanasius Creed, again in the 400s, they said it like this, we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, perfect God and perfect man. One of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, he said it like this, that when Jesus became man, he was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus humanity. It's a little interesting bit of trivia for you. Um, St. Nicholas, who we get the idea of Santa Claus from, um, there's a lot that's not known, some of the myths about him, him leaving gold or whatever in someone's uh, stocking, like that's how the stockings got started. No one really knows if that's true or not, if it's just kind of an urban legend. The one thing we do know about St. Nicholas is this, is that there was a council, a church council, again, where they were just trying to decide what does the church, what is the orthodox proper view of Jesus? It's called the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And there was this guy named Arius there. And Arius was this basically a heretic. He was arguing that Jesus was not fully God. And he kept going on about it and on about it. And Saint Nick, this, uh, this bishop, walks up to him and just slaps him, right? And so when we think of Saint Nicholas, think of that, right? Think of the guy that like was so adamant about the idea that Jesus was fully God that he walked up and smacked a guy and was, he was put in jail for it actually um, because you're not supposed to do that apparently at a church council meeting. Um, and no one told him, I guess, but he contended and it was a big enough deal for him that he walked up and slapped a dude because he wasn't gonna stand for a guy standing up and making this argument that Jesus was not fully God. But we hold to this idea that he's 100% God and 100% man. And guys, there's so many implications of that reality. What I want to do with the rest of our time this morning, look at basically three results of the hypostatic union, three, three implications of the idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And the first one is this, because Jesus is both God and man, he is uniquely equipped to reconcile God and man. So think about very simply, man in our sin, we had broken and hindered our relationship with God, right? That we talked about the idea of God being omnipresent, that yes, God is always with us, but it's very different for God to be with us in a general sense and for us to be in right standing with God. And what the Bible teaches is that because we sin, because we've rebelled against God, because every one of us in this room have done something wrong in our lives, because of that rebellion and transgression against God and his law and his character, that we have been separated, that there is a breach in the relationship between man and God. And the Bible also teaches that as man, that there's nothing we could do in our own power to fix that. That there's, we're unable because of our sin nature, because of our propensity to rebel and, and not obey God, that we are unable to fix that problem. No normal man could fix it. Man simply couldn't do it. The other side of that is that God really, and bear with me here, you're gonna think this is heresy at first, but God really couldn't fix it either. 
Because what needed to happen for man to be reconciled with God was two things. One, a penalty had to be paid, and that penalty was death. And God, by his very nature, can't die. He is eternal, right? So God couldn't really fix this either. And it wasn't God's job. It wasn't on him to make reconciliation. It was man who sinned. So it was on man to make amends, to make it right, to get back to God. So man couldn't fix it, and really God couldn't fix it. Behold, Jesus Christ, the God-man. The only solution, the only possible solution to the problem of sin. Only Jesus, God made flesh, the God-man, could represent humanity as a human, but live the perfect life that you and I could not live and die a death by his precious blood in our place, taking the penalty for all sins because he did not have his own sin to deal with. He was the perfect sacrifice, the innocent one, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why these these, these terms and these ideas are important because they help us understand how it is and why it is that Jesus uniquely was equipped and able to reconcile God and man. Church, how different is our access to God now that Jesus has come from what we talked about earlier. I mean, you and I come in here and we, we expect God to speak to us. We expect and kind of almost take for granted that God is accepting us, that we are okay to approach his throne. We do not get scared or think that we have to have a special invitation or make special provisions for ourselves before we come into this place and enter into a time of worship and seeking the Lord. Jesus has changed all that. He's changed all of it through his reconciliation. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 says that Christ was made perfect through suffering. He was made perfect. As God, he was already perfect, but he was made perfect in that he became the one who could reconcile God and man. I found a quote by a guy named Ron Rhodes. I shared this with last year as well. I'm gonna gonna share it with you guys again because it captures this idea so well. It says this, if Christ the Redeemer had been only God, he could not have died since God by his very nature cannot die. It was only as a man that Christ could represent humanity and die as man. As God, however, Christ's death had infinite value and was sufficient to supply redemption for the sins of all mankind Clearly then, Christ had to be both God and man to secure man's salvation. Because of that, our access to God is opened up. The veil has been torn. God is truly with us in the sense that he wasn't before Jesus came. Hebrews 10 says it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So because Jesus is God and man, he is uniquely equipped to reconcile God and man. Also because Jesus is God and man, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Again, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, we do not have a high priest, the high priest being Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, when we, as, has been tempted as we are and yet 
without sin. And guys, part of the, the beauty of Christmas time celebrating Jesus coming to be among us is that it reminds us that God is not just this distant observer of the problems that you and I face on a daily basis. That when we suffer, he's been there, right? He knows what that's like. It's one of, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. That Jesus experienced the full gamut of what it means to be human. The emotion, the loss, and that he is with us in all seasons. That in good times, when you're, maybe this is a good season for you, when you're celebrating with your family, you're, you're giving gifts, and it's a joyous time, and, and um, maybe, maybe you have a brother there, and you've, you have this warm embrace with him, and you're reminded of the importance of family, that Jesus gets that, right? He knows the encouragement and the warmth of a pat on the back or a hug or whatever it is that encourages you that, and he's with you in that. He rejoices in those times with you as you rejoice. And that at hard times when there's tears that Jesus has wept, that he gets it, that he knows. And then everything in between, right? That he's been there, he, he gets it. He's not just some distant observer of our lives, but he has walked where we've walked. He's been where we've been. He knows and understands what we're going through. And because Jesus is God and man, we have cause to celebrate and to hope. I mean, I, I just want to maybe, I feel like sometimes our job as pastors is just to kind of a, affirm or inform what, what, what we feel sometimes as, as we walk through life through a biblical lens. And can I just say this, like, it's okay to be happy during this Christmas season, right? I mean, one thing I despise about our culture is that, like, everyone loves to be against things, right? It's like any kind of social media, something good happens, and sure enough, someone is going to parachute in and find a dark side to that good thing, right? Like, that's just what our culture does. And I think sometimes we do that with Christmas, right? Like, we, we look at all the, all the lights and all the presents and <laughs> almost like Judas, right, telling Telling Mary, like that, that, the oil, that ointment could have spent on, been sold and, and given to the poor, right? That we look at the, the presents and the ornaments and think, well, that money could have been you know, spent elsewhere, right? Like this Scrooge mentality where we just like take all the things surrounding Christmas and just cast a, a negative light on it. It's, it's so commercialized. It's this, it's that. And yeah, I mean, there, there are some, some dangers in the commercialization of Christmas for sure that we would lose Jesus in light of that. But guys, a lot of those are are good things, right? I mean, the people like put lights all over their house in recognition and celebration of the birth of the Son of God, the light of the world. Can we just kind of be glad for that for a second and stop finding everything wrong with it, right? Like, I love the way um, Trevin Wax said this. He wrote an article about this and he said this about how, how the Christmas season, there are a lot of good things that it has infiltrated our culture with. Like, you look at the lights, you look at the presents, that you look at how people will, will um, a lot of times go volunteer for things or give charitably things that they otherwise don't during the season. And again, it's, it's tempting to go, well, you know, those people still have needs the rest of the year too, right? Yes, obviously that's true. But isn't the giving and the, the contributing and the volunteering at Christmas better than nothing at all? <laughs> I mean, so... He says it this way, he says, should we not marvel 
that even in our increasingly secular age, people still sing carols packed with biblical truth every year? It's crazy, right? I mean, we take it for granted, but like that some of the most secular artists who none of their music has any ounce of anything that would make you think they fear or worship the Lord will release a Christmas album and sing about Christ the newborn king, right? It's, it's, it's odd and, it, and it's crazy. And it, it, I think it's, it's good that we can, like Paul said, that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice. That the knowledge of God is made known through those things, even if it's not coming from the best place all the time. Should we not marvel that in the secular age, people still sing carols packed with biblical truth every year? Joy to the world indeed. As a fragmented society, we've lost the shared culture of music that everyone knows, right? And then he says, but once a year, we reach back in time and listen to the holiday recordings older than our parents and sing along to hymns that are older than our grandparents that everyone knows. Should we not marvel that in a world of broken homes, that big family dinners still take place? That during Christmas reunions still happen and that people put aside their differences to share a meal? When Jesus spoke about his coming, he talked about food and drink and the table. Surely in our Christmas celebrations, we can hear a faint echo pointing us to the church's great feast at the end of time. Should we not marvel that in a dog-eat-dog -dog world of competition run by the evolutionary model of survival of the fittest, that even in that, our culture devotes time to spending time running to and fro, giving and receiving and caring for the poor in this special season? So church, like, I just want to encourage you with that, that like, all, all this stuff that surrounds Christmas, that yeah, there's, there's dangers to the commercialization of it, there's dangers to the gift giving and the lights and all those things, but there's a lot of good in it too. And it's okay this Christmas season because of what Christ has done to just rejoice and be glad with your family, with others in light of that truth and to celebrate it. But can I tell you that it's also okay if you're longing for things to get better. Because part of Advent, historically, is not just that Jesus has come, it's, the, it's not just a celebration that Jesus has come, it's the anticipation that he's coming again. Some of you think that I did this because I was afraid I would spill it. Well, you're wrong. I left it part empty because through Christmas, the presence of God, God with us, is more true now than it's ever been because of what Jesus has done. He's ascended, he has left, up with, left us with his Holy Spirit so that God is with us now in this great, remarkable way that he never was before. But we're still waiting, right? That the glass isn't full. Just like we would look at the Old Testament and say, yeah, God was with them, but, but man, not fully. That, that, that's true now too. That yeah, God is with us by his spirit, but, but it's not the same. It's not the same as it was in Eden. And so we have reason not just to celebrate, but to anticipate his coming again because the best is yet to come. And we, 
we get, I think we forget that, man. I think especially in Rockwell, Texas, like we're expecting it to be here, right? We get in this mindset that because Jesus has come, because he's dealt with sin fully and finally and all these things, he's reconciled us to God and then that we have this life he's given us and we have lots of good things around us that we're surprised when we feel emptiness. Don't be surprised when you feel emptiness, church. Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's gonna be some emptiness in our lives. There's gonna be some brokenness. There's gonna be some longing. There's gonna be some anticipation and some want until he comes again, but we have hope that he is. That one day he will wipe away every tear from every eye and we will join in the true Christmas feast without the dissension and drama that plagues our tables today. Do you long for that? Do you long for Emmanuel? That yes, he has come, yes, he is here, yes, he is with us, but not fully. One of my favorite passages regarding this, is, it's funny because a lot of times we think, we look at the passage where um, um, Jesus tells the disciples, look, it's better for you that I go because I'm gonna send the spirit and he's gonna be with you and you're gonna do things greater than even you saw with me. And so there's a sense in which, yes, it's, it's, it's better for us to, to have the Holy Spirit to live on this side of the cross than it was for the disciples who, who were with Jesus face to face, but there's also a longing there, right? Look at this in Matthew chapter nine, verse 15. The Pharisees were, were, were accusing Jesus of disciples saying, why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? How come they don't fast like the rest of us? Do they not long for the presence of God? And Jesus said this, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? This is not a time of fasting. When God stepped out of heaven, put on flesh and became earth, that's not a time to mourn and fast. Will the, bride, will the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But look what he says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Then they will long, then they will mourn. Though the disciples had the Holy Spirit, right? There was still a longing and a mourning and an aching and a yearning to be with Jesus again. Advent points us to all of it, Right? that God stepped into the darkness, that he brought his presence into our lives in a way that had never been thought of or imagined before when Jesus came in. Because of that, we can know him. We can approach the throne boldly with confidence. And Advent is also an anticipation that he's coming again. That the hurt, the anger, the frustration, the sin, the struggles, one day Emmanuel will be Right now it's Emmanuel, capital I. One day it will be all caps. Emmanuel, God with us. We will truly be with him in the fullest sense and all of the emptiness will be gone. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this season, this time, and um, even some of the, the sappy things surrounding it and the, all the hymns, all the, all the reminders that we get to embrace and enjoy and take part in every year. And God, I thank you that our, our culture is um, affected by that, that our culture, even those who don't know you, participate in that. God, what a testament to your glory and your greatness, even among those who don't, who don't know you.
God, I pray that um, this reality that you became man and that you're coming again will make its full and proper impact on our hearts this season. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.